Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, I'm, I'm super passionate today about salvation. Um, and you may hear that coming up in the, in the sermon, or sorry, in the, in the prayer as I prayed for the families who've lost loved ones, uh, because it's really, it's the topic for today, and I've been studying it for the last little while, and I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Well, today is a a good day, uh, even when we face trials and difficulties, even when the days are long or difficult, it's still a good day because we have a good God who continues to to rule on His throne. He continues to provide. He continues to be with us. Today is a good day. I remember when I was in Bible college, it feels like it was yesterday. Uh, it was quite a few years ago now. But when I was in Bible college, I remember studying and learning about a pastor from the 1700s uh, who was named Jonathan Edwards. And many, many current day pastors fashion themselves after him. I don't myself, but I've seen uh, his ministry continue on into our current day. Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon. Uh, He had preached many sermons, obviously. He preached quite a bit. There was one sermon in particular that continues to live on. Uh, It was written in 1741, and he wrote it down, so it was recorded, and uh, you can find it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' 1741 sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's quite an ominous title, isn't it? Edwards preached this hellfire and brimstone sermon an attempt to save people from the fires of hell. And before you run out of the room quickly, uh, just know that we'll, we'll get to a better version, okay? So don't run away right away. Um, when, I, when I looked at this sermon again this week, um, I was taken aback a little bit in my office. And I, I honestly, I wept a little bit um, in my office as I read it because I feel like I, the understanding of God in this sermon is not what I think to be accurate, but I'm, I'm, let's press in together. I want to give you a short excerpt um, of this sermon. I think Jonathan Edwards' desire was that people would come to salvation. I think that's a good desire. I think he maybe got, went about it a little bit of a, a strange way. But here's um, his, uh, just an excerpt from his message, and he was speaking directly to people he called sinners, those who had yet, not yet received Jesus Christ into their life. And so here is the, an excerpt. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer, purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Those are strong words. Yes? Would you agree? In my understanding of Scripture, in my experience with Jesus, I don't think these words are accurate to the true character of God. But perhaps you've heard sermons like this before. Like I said, there are many people that follow in the footsteps of Jonathan Edwards, and you hear hellfire and brimstone messages often today even. And while there is a real heaven and there is a real hell, 
and we must put our faith in Jesus Christ to attain to heaven, much of what I just read seems backwards from how Jesus viewed salvation. Now, if these words from Edward sounded strong to you and a little bit wrong, or if they felt not strong to you and they felt kind of right on the money, maybe we should take some time today to look at Jesus and learn a little bit more about what he thought about salvation. Today, we are in our Meaning of Oranges series where we are rediscovering the way of Jesus. If you're here for the first time today, and you want to know what the meaning of oranges means, you're going to have to watch one of our previous sermons because we've explained it enough for this series. Basically, what we're attempting to do is look back at the traditions, customs, and beliefs that we hold to to try to find the real meaning behind what we do and what we believe. What is the way of Jesus? And how can we separate the man-made additions from the God-ordained traditions. Today we're looking at the way of Jesus and how Jesus viewed salvation. So let's dig right in here. While the subject of salvation is vast and wide, and we could, there's whole books, libraries written on this subject, I want to focus in on just two questions to try to use our time wisely. What must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? And what does it mean to be saved? For the first, what must we do to be saved? I want to take us to John chapter 3. Now, in this chapter, the Apostle John records a meeting between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. This meeting happens late at night under the cover of darkness. Nicodemus is obviously concerned with openly meeting with Jesus, and for good reason. Nicodemus is a well-known Pharisee with, with a great deal of clout. Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. Now, whether or not he would have called every rabbi Israel's teacher or not, it seems like this is an honoring title for Nicodemus. Nicodemus is Israel's teacher. Nicodemus is putting his reputation on the line by meeting with Jesus, and so he meets with them late at night. At the beginning of this passage, Nicodemus starts everything off by paying Jesus a compliment. He says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. That's quite a compliment to Jesus. Now, the proper etiquette of that time, and of course the proper etiquette of this time, if someone were to pay you a compliment as they first met you, you would most naturally say something nice about them as well, pay them a compliment back, but Jesus does not do that. It seems like Jesus right away knows what Nicodemus wants to ask without Nicodemus even asking it. Because instead of having a nice back and forth general meet and greet with Nicodemus, Jesus cuts right to the chase and he says this, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It's a strange answer to Nicodemus's non-question, right? But Jesus says to him right away, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now pause on this for just a moment. Nicodemus's unasked question is likely the same question that many others approached Jesus with. It was actually a fairly common question. The, the Jewish people would, if they saw someone who was a rabbi or a prophet or a miracle worker or, or somebody like Jesus, they would often ask 
the question of the rabbi, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Everyone wanted to know what a teacher's teaching was regarding being saved. So likely, likely Nicodemus is here to meet with Jesus, teacher to teacher, to ask Jesus, what do you say I must do to be saved? And so Jesus gives Nicodemus the answer even before he asks the question. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now this statement gets Nicodemus all riled up. Nicodemus debates Jesus in this little back and forth. They begin to debate each other with Nicodemus confused as to what this means and trying to figure this out a little bit. And there's a good reason as to why Nicodemus would be riled up over this, this statement of Jesus. Because Nicodemus is at the top of the Jewish hierarchy. He's at the very top, a teacher of teachers, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. For the Jewish people at this point in their history especially, they see attaining to the kingdom of God as a works-based exchange. If you work hard enough, pray hard enough, give enough time, effort, money, follow the commandments and be the best that you can be, you will have earned your right to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus has certainly done this. He has earned the right to enter the kingdom of God. He has done all that he needs to do to be at the front of the line to enter the kingdom of God. Or has he? Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus is saying that in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be spiritually born again. You must start over from the beginning. Say goodbye to the old life. You must enter into a brand new life. No accolades, no performance mastery, no list of accomplishments, no titles or prestige. You must start over again with nothing and be born again. Nicodemus asked the question that we are all thinking, of course, if someone were to say you need to be born again, we would ask this kind of a question. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus says. And he paints us an interesting picture here. He says, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. All the moms go, oofta, right? At this, this is exactly the point. This is exactly the point. This is an impossibility. How can a person be born again? It's impossible. It's impossible. And that's the point. Because this is an act of God. You cannot produce the effort needed to earn your own salvation. No one here could be born again. We can't just do that. You cannot, through your own strength or hard work, enter again into your mother's womb. It cannot happen. This is an act of God. Only God can make you born again. Heaven cannot be earned. The only thing you can do is submit yourself to the work of God. You cannot work hard enough, pray hard enough, give enough time, money, or effort. You cannot follow enough commandments or be the best that you can be to earn the right to enter the kingdom of God. It's an act of God. It's an act of God. And we must submit ourselves to God to be spiritually born again. So in this exchange, Nicodemus asks the next obvious question. What must I do to be saved was his first non-asked question. Jesus says you must be born again. 
And so he follows up the question with another non-question, really, how is this possible? And here, this leads Jesus to say this, and this is a verse you may recognize. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Nicodemus's first unasked question, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, be born again. And then Nicodemus's pushback about how is that possible? How can one be born again? And Jesus says, believe in me. Believe in me. And you will be born again. The thing I like about this passage in John chapter 3 is that Jesus strips away the possibility that we could earn salvation on our own. He strips away that possibility. Be born again. Start over again with, with nothing. At the very beginning, start over again. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. He strips away the possibility that we can earn salvation on our own. And then he pins salvation to the love of God. He pins salvation to the love of God. Not on the wrath of God. Jesus does not speak to Nicodemus about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jesus speaks about the length God would go to to save lost sinners because of his great love. The lengths that God would go to to save the lost. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you, do you get that? We don't often read that other half of this passage. We usually read the, the first verse that says, God, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But the next verse says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's act here is not the, God of a wrath, or the act of a wrathful, vengeful God. It's, the, God. it's the act of a God who loves so much that he would go to every length to save the lost. And while we sometimes say that salvation is free, when we say that salvation is free, we're not being completely truthful, are we? Salvation is God's free gift to us. From our end of the bargain, it is a free gift that God gives to us, but it cost Jesus his life. It was not a free gift. Someone paid for it. Jesus paid for it. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sacrificed his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Because of his great love, God has given us salvation, something that we did not and could not have earned for ourselves, but it was not free. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, the wages, or the cost of our sin should be and would be, if it were not for Jesus, eternal death. An eternal separation from God. That's the cost of our sin. But God has given us salvation freely. Eternal life and friendship with God has been bought and paid for by Jesus. It cost him his life. What must I do to be saved? Submit to God to be born again by believing in Jesus. 
who because of God's great love has paid for our costly salvation with his life. This is what we must do to be saved. Well, knowing that, let's move on to the second question we have for today. What does it mean to be saved? We know what we must do to be saved, but what does it mean to be saved? Well, let me throw some quick Greek words out to you, and you don't need to remember these words at all. I just want you to get the idea that's being conveyed here. Okay, you, you know that when you translate a word, if anybody here speaks a second language, you know that when you translate a word from one language to another, you lose some of the depth of it, right? You lose some of the meaning of it. Let, let me show you what I mean here. One of the Greek words translated for salvation is soteria. And one of the Greek words translated for the word to save is sozo. Okay, so for salvation, it's soteria. For to save, it's sozo. And in our passage in, in Luke chapter 19, which we're going to look at here in just a moment, Jesus uses both of these words when he says this at the end of this passage. Jesus says, Today salvation, soteria, has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save sozo, the lost. Now, soteria means salvation, and it's often translated that way in the New Testament. But soteria also means prosperity, preservation, and safety. It's a deep word with more than just one meaning. Uh, similarly, sozo means to save, and it's often translated that way in the New Testament. But sozo also means to heal, preserve, rescue, deliver, cure, get well, and make whole. This is such a bigger word than what we normally think of. Isn't that astounding? Just look at those two words and look at those meanings underneath there and see what it feels like to look at those. When we talk about salvation ordinarily in biblical terms, we often define salvation as a purely spiritual function. Now, back in Jesus' day, in the Jewish understanding of things, they didn't separate out spiritual and physical like we do today. We separate these two things out. We say, well, there's spiritual and there's physical. But in the Jewish understanding of things, these two things were tied together intimately. The spiritual and the physical were connected. But when we talk about salvation, we usually talk about it in a very spiritual function. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Normally we mean believe in Jesus and you will go to heaven. But that is not necessarily the only thing that Jesus meant when he talked about being saved. And to view salvation as a merely spiritual exchange would be to unnaturally limit the way Jesus used these words. You can see that these two words in the Greek have a much bigger depth to them than to just be saved spiritually. And I want to show you what this looks like just from this story in Luke chapter 19. This passage is the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember, maybe you remember this story, but let me read it for you quickly. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, I don't want to go on and on about this, but if you're a chief tax collector and you're wealthy, it means you've probably robbed some people of, of their taxes. The way they made money is by overtaxing. 
And so a wealthy chief tax collector would have overtaxed greatly, okay? So he has done some stuff that's not quite so up and up going on. He want, so this is Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the, the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Isn't that awesome? I love that. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Now remember, this is happening right there on the street in the middle of the entire crowd. Today, salvation, soteria, has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save Sozo the lost. A couple of things for this from this passage. This is a fantastic passage. Jesus looks at this man, Zacchaeus, a sinner, and invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. Now, what do you not see in this exchange? You don't see the wrath of God. You don't see the anger of God. You don't see the rage of God bubbling up out of Jesus. No. What do you see? You see Jesus speaking to Zacchaeus like a friend. Like, like, like someone who cares for him. I'm going to come and eat in your home tonight, Zacchaeus. It looks like care and love and friendship. And, and here's the... the Oh, it's just, this is amazing. As soon as Zacchaeus has this initial experience with Jesus, as soon as Jesus turns his way, while Zacchaeus is still climbing down from the tree and getting himself up in front of Jesus, as, as quickly as this is happening, a change happens in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus attempts to reconcile with the people of his town. He's set free from the, the greed and whatever else drove him as a wealthy tax collector. And change happens for Zacchaeus immediately. He becomes a generous person, overly generous, paying back four times what he might have cheated anybody. Both Soteria and Sozo have happened here. Zacchaeus has been saved, but he's also been delivered. He's also been made whole. Something astounding happens in this man's life. A change occurs, and not just in the spiritual eternal realm, not just that Zacchaeus is going to be going to heaven one day, and, and that's what is going to happen many years from now, but a change has happened for Zacchaeus in the here and now. And this is a story that is repeated over and over again with people who experience the presence of Jesus. You see this again and again in the stories of the New Testament as people come into the presence of Christ Change happens for them right away. They have a right now change that affects the here and now. See, I think that in our limiting of salvation to just going to heaven, we've missed the reality that salvation includes a right now change in us and in our world. Salvation in Jesus includes not just the, the, the by and by, the something that will happen years from now, but there's something that's happening right now. If we describe salvation as just a get-out-of-hell-free card, 
then we miss what Jesus really meant. Salvation makes things right. The good news saves us, delivers us, and, and sets us free. For Jesus, salvation made a difference right away in the lives of those who were saved. Jesus did speak about eternity. There was many times that Jesus spoke about what heaven was going to look like and what was coming in the, in the far-off distant future. He spoke about the reward for those who believed and, and the penalty for those who would not. But Jesus spent most of his time speaking about the right now kingdom of God. Not just about the difference the gospel makes for tomorrow, but about the difference the gospel makes for today. And that's where the power of God, the power of the good news, becomes so real for us. And not just in our behavior, either. The gospel is good news for today because the gospel is the hope of Christ. It's the the peace of Jesus. It's the love of God made real for us right now. It's not just that you will experience God's presence sometime off in the distance, but if you come into a relationship with God, you get to experience his presence for now. You get to know his hope. You get to know his joy. You get to know his love right now. The gospel is real right now. When John the baptizer's disciples came to ask Jesus if he was the Messiah. You remember this story? Maybe you don't. There was a time that John the baptizer was in jail, and he's like, I don't know if Jesus is really the Messiah. Sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus and says, ask them if you're really the Messiah. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. All these people will one day be in heaven. No, sorry, that's not what it says there. What Jesus says, though, On answering, are you really the Messiah? Jesus says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is Jesus' mission to bring the right now kingdom of God here to earth. The good news of Jesus made a difference right then, and it still makes a difference right now. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for today not just because of heaven that is coming one day, but because of the kingdom of God that is here today. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be spiritually saved for eternity. Yes, that's a piece of it. But it also means to be saved, delivered, healed, and made whole for today. We can see the change that Jesus makes today. And maybe we don't see everything that we hope for, Maybe there's pieces of this that we still long for that we don't yet see. And that's part of the conflict of living in a broken world. But we do see the good news of Jesus making a real change today. To only speak about heaven when we share the good news is to miss the right now salvation that happens today. Now, I've prayed for people on their deathbed. I've prayed for many people on their deathbed. And I've prayed for people to receive Christ on their death, but I've asked them the question, do you know where you're going? You're about to die. Do you know what's waiting for you? And I've prayed for them to receive Jesus. And at that moment, the only thing I'm really focused on is heaven. That's it, because they've got minutes left. So I sit there on their, by, with them on their deathbed, and I say, you need to know Jesus now, because in just a few minutes, it's going to be super real for you. But when I talk to people who are not on their deathbed, 
I don't always say, you know what, where do, do you know where you're going when you die? I mean, that's a great question, but who thinks of that? If you're talking to a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old, I guarantee you they probably haven't really thought about the, the length of eternity. They're probably thinking about how they're, what they're going to do for a job next week or what their school they're going to go to or some of these type of things. But if, when I speak to someone who's not on their deathbed about Jesus, I talk to them about who they are. Do you know that you can experience the love of God? God loves you so much. Do you know you can experience his peace and his hope and his joy right now? Do you know that Jesus is for you, not against you? And as I speak to them about how God sees them right now, that's the good news. The good news that makes a difference today in the lives of people. Jonathan Edwards' message about sinners in the hands of an angry God misses the love of God and the right now reality of salvation. God is not angry with those who are lost. God longs for those who are lost to come home. That's what his desire is. He is a loving father who wants those that are lost to come home. He actively seeks out the lost. Because of God's great love, Jesus has paid for our costly salvation with his life, and he offers us salvation which not only gives us eternal life, but life and hope and peace and joy for today. I grew up in what I consider to be a, a non-Christian home. I don't remember really talking about God ever uh, in my early years of life. I, I do remember that if I said Jesus Christ as a swear word, that my mom would <coughs> either give me a stern look or a smack upside the back of my head. And I never understood that because I didn't know who Jesus was. It wasn't until much later in my life, when I was around 35 years old, that I had a conversation with my mom where I found out that she was a Christian. In fact, as a young married couple, my mother and father had both been youth leaders at their Baptist church. And this shocked me as I saw little evidence in my early years of any spiritual connection in either one of them. And I asked my mom, why? Why, if she had once been connected to Christ, why did I see so little evidence of Christ in our home when I was growing up. And I wasn't asking condemningly. I wasn't offended or angry. I was genuinely curious. Why did I not see Jesus in our home? Why did, not, why did I not hear about God? And so my mom told me this story. My father and her had led the youth group at the Baptist church and had loved the preacher and, who preached sermons full of hope and truth and love that is found in Jesus Christ today. He spoke very much about what we're talking about today, that salvation is not just for tomorrow, it's for today. And he shared that. They were invitational sermons to experience more of the presence of Jesus and to, to walk in his ways and, and to know his friendship. And these encouraged my parents. They, they learned about Jesus and they grew in their faith and, and they loved connecting. But then, as is often the case uh, this pastor moved uh, along to another posting, and a new pastor came into that little church. And this new pastor was a little different. The sermons on the hope, truth, and love found in Christ for today changed to sermons of hellfire and brimstone. Sermons about an angry God who threatened and condemned and tried to scare people into right behavior and decisions to follow Christ. After feeling belittled and discouraged, my parents left that Baptist church and along the way left behind their faith and, and didn't speak about it for years. 
As my mom told me this story, I felt like I needed to apologize on behalf of pastors. So I apologize. I said, I'm, I'm sorry that that's, that that's what was preached. I'm sorry that that's how you were treated. And I apologized on behalf of myself as well. Because I know as I was uh, learning about Jesus in my youthful excitement to know more about Jesus and for my family to know more about Jesus, I know that I kind of came across as a hellfire and brimstone person towards my mother as well. And so I apologized for that. We ended up speaking late into the night and working it all out. And I'm happy to report um, that my mom is a devoted follower of Christ today. And she's actually watching online. She watches every Sunday morning from Florida and uh, texts me, I'm praying for you, you're doing a great job, good job, boy, and all that fun stuff. So thank you, Mom. (laughs) Jesus preached salvation that was driven by the love of God. Salvation that was bought and paid for by the death of Jesus. Salvation that brought eternal life and life for today. Do you know that kind of salvation? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know the joy and the peace and the hope of Jesus for today? Has your life been touched by the God who is deeply in love with you? What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus Christ in order to be born again. What does it mean to be saved? It means you have eternal life and you have life, hope, joy, and peace available to you today. If you don't yet believe in Jesus, if you've not yet put your faith in him, today is a great opportunity to do so. Would you like to believe in Jesus today for the very first time? There's no magic prayer. I'm actually not even going to do a prayer for you. You can simply turn to Jesus like Zacchaeus did. Over and over again through the New Testament, the question is asked, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so if today is the first time that you're going to turn your heart towards Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe in you, come, help me to be born again, then I encourage you just to do that right where you're at in your own head. Believe in Jesus and turn to him. Jesus, we believe in you. Come and bring your salvation for us today. So there's two challenges I have for you today. The first challenge is to maybe rethink salvation and what it means. The second challenge is, in light of what we've talked about today, with salvation being good news for today, would you consider how you share the good news? Would you consider people around you that need to know about the hope and the joy and the peace and the love of God? Would you consider who you can share that news with? Not that it's just good news for eternity, but it's good news for today. So I challenge you to think of someone even right now that you can share that good news with. Let me pray a benediction and blessing over you. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what you've done to sacrifice Jesus Christ for us. That you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus, right now for your people, would you help us to understand salvation, to understand your great love for us, and Lord, you help us to, to be able to share that good news with the people around us. I pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit today for everyone who's here or watching online. Lord, you fill us afresh with your spirit that we would be empowered and equipped to go out from here and reveal the good news 
to everyone we come in contact with. So we love you, Jesus. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you would like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.